Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Welcome to the Sanctified Mind Podcast. We are back with another episode, and Jeff is here with us again. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great tonight, guys. Good. Ryan? I'm doing awesome. And Bo? Excellent. Can't complain at all. All right. Well, it is good to be here, guys. It is uh, good to be children of the King, and it's good to be talking about uh, these topics tonight. So last episode, we covered D.G. Hart's book, The Lost Soul of American Protestantism, and we're going to cover some more topics that he touched on in the book. The very first topic we're going to touch on is the relevance of Christianity. That's a common theme in his book. A, A critique that he had in the book of the historic Protestant church in America would be that they were striving for relevance at the neglect of the word and the sacrament, right? And at the the expense of, that's right. At the expense of that. That's what he's making the argument for. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what is the relevancy of the church in the wider culture? How do we balance that with the otherworldliness of Christianity, right? Because again, this is, we're pilgrims, right? This is not our world. We're going somewhere better than that. Better than here, right? Even if we're saved, we're in the already, not yet. We're we're in the world, but not of the world, as Scripture says. Right. Even if we're saved, we still have a body of flesh, right? The right. old man of sin, we're not yet perfected, we're not yet glorified. So how do we balance the idea of being Christians, but also existing and living in the world? Like, how do we balance that? I think it comes down to the idea that we are in this world, and because we're in this world, we have responsibilities to this world. We have a dominion mandate. We have things that God has instituted for us to do, and we ought to be about our Father's business in doing that. Now, what those things are, you know, obviously different people are going to say it's different things. You know, you've got the the every member, what's that thing you don't like? Every member ministry. There we go. We got that where, where we're, all, we're all ministers, where all we're doing is evangelism. You know, but I, I don't necessarily take it in that in that sense as much as it's we have the dominion mandate. We ought to be doing certain things. We have certain responsibilities as children, like you said, of a king. We have responsibilities of things to do in the kingdom. Um, and I think there's a balance that you have to find between those responsibilities and the fact that this is not our ultimate home. This is not what we're working to, but we still have things to do here. And, uh, we, you know, there's there's more that can be said about that, but that's a good starting point. Interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the dominion mandate. Do you think that Christ fulfilled that himself, or does the church have a role in being We've been helper? On the, one, one minute into this, you're already asking some abstract, esoteric question. You mentioned I, the I, dominion I mandate. I wasn't expecting that when I mentioned it. I think it, you could probably answer that both, though, right? So Christ definitively basically fulfills that, but at the same time, through the ministry of the church, through the ministry, the outworking of the gospel, throughout history— it is also fulfilled by the church. So it's a little bit of both. Right. So we're in the already, not yet. Christ has fulfilled that. We are still on earth. We are still trying to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and to follow Christ in our spheres and in our lives. That's no different than saying that, you know, Christ has, you know, redeemed the elect throughout history, but all of history hasn't been written yet. So there's still this manifestation of this to come to fruition. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, and the church is the one or the people who bring that to those who haven't heard the gospel and need to hear it, right? Right. You talked about the otherworldliness of Christianity. I think the way that Hart puts it in his book is 
the pietistic Protestant quest for relevant religion leads to political and social antagonism, and the otherworldliness of confessional Protestant piety results in wholesome irrelevance. That's not the route that I think that any of us want to go, right. where we are whole, wholly irrelevant to the culture. And right. what, is, what does he mean by antagonism anyway? I mean, what, what does he mean? Is there a tension between what's happening in the world and what the law of God is? Is that the, the antagonism? If that's the case, then color me antagonistic. No I, I, no, I think his antagonism, though, I think really comes around this idea of how is piety expressed. Okay. So for the revivalist, it's always manifested in some kind of political action, some kind of social action, some kind of external thing. They always have to be doing something. They have to be doing something, okay. whereas he would argue... Cause an know, activist, right? Well, right. Activist some religion. kind of activist thing, but I mean, I, I think he would argue that our piety is primarily expressed in the hearing of the word and the participation of the sacraments and the life of the body, those sorts of things. The which, ordinary means of grace. Which for the revivalist is like too abstract. So they're looking for, I need to go do something and there is, I, I think it's a little bit of both, though. Sure. Yeah, so, so the, the relevancy of Christianity is not primary, right? It's not that we're primarily trying to be relevant as Christians. It's proximate in that we become relevant through the main focus of Christianity, which is the Word and Sacrament, which is growing in our sanctification and by those things, we become relevant because we live in the world. And as Christ transforms us to be more like him, then those things are going to be relevant in our lives. And so, you know, Christ says, if you love me, do what I command. And so then we're going to become relevant. That, that becomes relevant in our lives, not because that's the primary focus that we need to do something in our life. Just go do something. Just go fix something. You know, let's go and make the culture Christian. It's. No, we're pursuing Christ, and as we do that, then Christianity does become relevant because it, because we live in the world. Because two points there. Number one, uh, grace is always going to precede any choice that's going to happen by anybody who's interacting with us. And number two, we don't need to make Christianity relevant. It's already relevant, right? right? When I go to uh, protests at abortion clinics with my church, with an elder there, preaching the word and calling women to turn away from what they are about to do. That's not him trying to make Christianity relevant to them. That's Christianity being relevant and a call to repentance. And that's an engagement in the public sphere. That's not happening on Sunday. You know, so the idea that, Oh, you just come into worship and you know, you have the rest of the days of the week and the faith doesn't really come into play anywhere else. No, that's not the, really the case. Um, you you have those means through your own church, so long as you're going to church, to have that outlet to reach people. And that's an evangelistic outreach in some sense, and it's not the primary function of the church, but it is something secondary. And I wish that Hart had um, made that clear, where I agree that the church's primary role is to make disciples and to— Administer um, the sacraments. Correct. Right. Means of grace. Wh- right. Well, I was just going to say, though, I mean, that, that even gets into, like, his later chapters where, you know, who are you primarily preaching the gospel to? Is it outsiders or insiders? Right. Your children? Or your children? I mean, th- those sorts of things come up. But I think that the idea of even—and it's good, right? It's evangelism, right? When you're at the abortion clinic, you're protesting, et cetera. But there's also a sense in which that's not necessarily the call of every individual to do because people have different callings, different spheres, different gifts. They're going to bring those to bear in the business world. They're going to bring them in family life. They're going to bring them in all sorts of things. And that's where is Christianity relevant? Of course. How is it relevant? That's the real question. And, And some of that is wisdom. Some of that's not necessarily indicative to say, 
say, we can find book chapter verse to go do thus and such. It's more, I've got to figure out what, what is it? And this is where wisdom comes in, right? You guys were mentioned earlier about the older and the younger and hey, how do I work this out? Well, maybe I take a job that doesn't require a lot of travel when my kids are little because I need to be close to home. Maybe I can do that when I'm older. Maybe not. I mean, those are the kind of things it's like, there's no clear, you know, do this. Scripture says you must be close to home. Well, maybe it depends on who you are. Now, Ryan, you, you brought up the, the abortion thing and it, it brought to bear a point that Jeff, you made, um, in the little discussion that we had about, I don't know if it's totally relevant to what we're talking about. So Daniel, feel free to move it along if you, you know, if it's not, but you talked about how that should be what Ryan's talking about should be a primarily a function of the diaconate. Can you kind of explain what you meant by sorry, that? Sorry, sorry. Ex- explain, clarify that for me. The diaconate. The, oh, 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 I was just talking about the, the work of the diaconate being basically an expression of mercy. Okay. So the work of the diaconate is primarily, so if you look at, if you think about the officers of the church, the ordinary perpetual offices, not the extraordinary offices, right? Yeah. You, so you have the teaching, you have the ruling. Right. So that's in Presbyterian government, we would say that you've got officer, officers that teach, and you've got officers that rule. Okay. The ruling elders rule. The, the deacons are basically doing, they're, they're the hands, as it were. They're, they're do basically extending mercy, and they're showing that external gifting, right? We're, we're primarily benefiting the people within the church, but we're also extending that mercy to those who are around the church. Okay, because that's, that's where I thought it was, it was really relevant to this conversation, because if you frame it the way you did, it's, you still have the, the teaching elders still focusing on administering the sacraments, feeding the flock, all of those things, but you have essentially the people that are receiving the benefits of that through those ordinary means of grace going out and doing the things that what Ryan is talking about. And let me make it clear that the elders are not making it a duty of us to right. have to and go out. I wasn't so implying that. Wasn't it, implying that. Exactly. Yeah. But that's why I wanted to follow up because that's a great point. We have, um, you know, when, when Paul says that scripture is sufficient for every good work, that doesn't mean that we have to do literally every good work. Like I don't right. have to be a surgeon going out right. and healing people or doing this or That's that. Right. You know, we all have spiritual gifts. Like you mentioned in the uh, book review, Bo, right? Mm-hmm. So you trying to do something that's not necessarily your spiritual gift, right? that doesn't have to be. And uh, that doesn't mean that we have no relevance in the public right. sphere. That's the complete opposite of what we should and be I, thinking. I thought that every was... good work you have to, if you talk about scripture being profitable for every good work, are there no good works in the public sphere? Right. I thought that was relevant because it, it kind of blends that idea of you can have both together, you know, where you have the, the elders doing what they need to do and their people doing what they need to do. And Christianity is relevant through the marrying of both people exercising that's, their gifts. That, that's Acts chapter six though. Right. right? We don't have time to do this, and so we're going to commission these other elders. And in fact, the OPC's book, I don't know how the PCA reads, but the OPC book basically says that if you don't have deacons, the elders absorb that work. So, I mean, it's just the work of the officers that becomes delegated to different individuals with different gifts. And so the church, it's still the work, the, the work of the church, though. I, I had this thought when reading the book. I was like, well, I, it almost seems like Hart is engaging in some clergy snobbery. Um, and let me explain. Uh, because I'm, he is a high church guy. Though. I'm very much, but, but he recommends the book though. <laughs> I, with caution, <laughs> snobbery is okay. We're reformed. I mean, come on. I'm very much, uh, I'm very much not a leveler, right? So I don't think you know. I think that there there is hierarchy in the church, and that there is very important roles that the pastors, um, you know, the called herald of the gospel, you know, they bring the word. Um, but it, it almost feels like 
like what you're saying is that he he was implying or the R2K maybe even if it's not him believes is like okay you know what's important is the ministry of the word and then all you Christians just come in receive the ministry of the word and then you don't really go out and live your lives as you know Christians in such a, a way that brings relevance to Christianity in your own spheres. I had that thought in reading the book, but I think what the, the biggest point and what he's trying to get across probably is that the relevant the relevancy of Christianity, because even like we're talking about abortion, right? Abortion can be social gospel. We talk about social gospel, like, oh, social gospel is bad, you know, we don't want social gospel. But if your pastor is in, his, in the church every week preaching about we need to, you know, fix abortion and, you know, go against abortion and, you know, all these other social issues, then that can become social gospel, even if it's a good thing. Not that we shouldn't, not that the pastor shouldn't ever mention social issues from the pulpit, right. but the primary thing the pastor is doing is making disciples, teaching people to, to come to Christ. It's fixating, you who are, on, fixating on that one issue that becomes now, and that, that I think that's what he's dealing with, right? That becomes now almost a sacramental or confessional issue, right? We have a confession that's separate and it says that you must be this or that, you know, you must be against abortion or you must be against war or whatever ends up Pro-homeschooling right? or whatever yeah, exactly, it is. exactly, exactly. Sure, because we're not the only people out there advocating against abortion. There's, Catholics. Ro- there's, Catholics, Roman, there's Catholics Roman Catholics are, out there. Yeah, Catholics and get, are always and get, right out there. And guess what my elder <laughs> goes to do? He primarily goes to preach the gospel of sola gratia so that the Roman Catholics that are there hear it. Hear it. Huh. Yes. Double whammy. That's, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the primary awesome. thing because they come over and talk to us and we talk to them. And that's when you have real, because let's, let's be honest, we have a whole mass of people out there. The, the women who are going up to the doors not going to be likely to want to come and talk to a big group of 50 group of, yeah exactly but what you will have are roman catholics who are in the same sort of mindset who will say well you know there's a lot of protestants around here and we're going to go talk to them about stuff and okay well that's when you can start to engage and as long as you have an elder there to supervise the flock and guard them because that's what my elder does you have that chance or opportunity to um, have an impact other than what you're really there for, and that's to still have an impact uh, uh, against abortion too. Schaefer talks about that actually in the early days that the Roman Catholics were, you know, much more on the forefront of the of the abortion, you know, the the, the, the anti-abortion movement, uh, calling that out for what it was, but also calling evangelical Christians in the in the broadest sense to you know recognize that. You know, we have co-belligerents. They're not necessarily, we're not necessarily calling them brothers and sisters. We know that there's problems with Roman Catholic theology. At the same time, not willing to just completely dismiss, dismiss them. So we have duties or, or commonality as citizens to say, hey, there's 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 problem here. We need to call this out, right? And that still is gospel in some respects, right? Even if it's, you know, second, third, fourth level, yeah, it just goes out. But they're still concerned to say, "Hey, there's a problem here. We need to we need to address or say something about this." But that's where you can talk about you know the transcendence of Christianity in terms of its truths. But there's also imminence. We have relevance in history, and that's what I think might have been missed by the book a little bit. Right, and even if that's not what he believes, it, it wasn't emphasized. I think as it should have been because right. I think we're all of one mind that is Christianity relevant. In your family? Well, yeah, of course. Is it relevant in your job? Yeah, of course. Is it relevant if you're a public officer in the government? Yeah, of course it is, right? Not that its relevancy is, you know, this is uh, an activist church that is primarily 
you know, uh, relevant because this is our mission to change the culture, right? No, it's relevant because Christ changes men and Christ changes us as we become more and more Christ-like, as we participate in the means of grace with the church and Christ transforms us as a course of our life as disciples, then yeah, we are transformed. And again, we live in different spheres. And so those spheres are going to be impacted by our Christian faith that informs everything we do. And so you can't divorce these things. So there's an error of trying to make Christianity just activist and, you know, we're relevant because we're Christian, you know, whatever the hot topic of the day is, we're going to be, you know, cultural diversity warriors or anti-abortion warriors. But the other, the other problem is to say like, we're going to be uh, just Christians. And then that doesn't impact other areas of our life. Like there's, I think there's very, it's very, both of those seem very clearly wrong. Right. And to be fair to Hart, you know, he's looking at it from an American perspective and what do Americans do? They try to make things relevant where they shouldn't. Oh, let's make the music different. Oh, let's try to make it where people enjoy being here and the worship service changes. No, worship needs to be what it is, and right. that will change the culture. Right. If you try to change the worship based on the culture, that's going to really send problems to everybody involved. And I think that's something that was very beneficial to me about this book was the shots that he took at that kind of pragmatic, results-driven kind of, you know, mindset that you see in broad evangelicalism and, you know, in the churches that we came up with, came up in and things like that. This idea of if something's not working, we've got to change this to make it work as if, you know, as if the results are are what you're really aiming for, you know. Or there's a programmic way about which to go through things when it's really the Holy Spirit and grace and it's That's, never it's never back to the Bible with those things. It's always looking at okay, well, what is this new model? What is this new program? This new method showing, you know? Actually, it's it's more than that. I think it's basically kind of trying to fit the Bible back into that scheme. So it's like sure. this works. So let's how do we fit the Bible right. into that scheme? And so it's not a matter of just tossing the Bible. It's a matter of how do we make the Bible say what we want yeah, to say? We, and that's a real problem. We've decided on our course of action. How can we which, make it which, biblical? Which actually gets back into his main point about confessionalism, right? What is the conf- I mean? The confession becomes a guide. A, a yeah. guardrails as it were about what Absolutely. the Bible teaches. And so it's not just a matter of saying, you know, the, the confession as some would accuse to say, well, it's replacing the Bible. No, it's actually the guardrails for which, how we're going to go with the Bible or not. No. And chapter one says it doesn't replace the Bible. Like that's- yeah, so, the, so the biggest thing would be the confession calls, calls you to obedience to the Bible, right? Whereas the, the relevant outlook would say we need to make Christianity relevant. And so it's got to fit into the, the mold or the model that's going to be relevant to cultural society with the confessionals would say, no, we're called to obedience. And then God is the one who brings the increase, right? God is the one who grows his church, right? And I, I also think this gets into the idea of how do we grow the church? And maybe we'll talk, we'll talk more about this uh, when we talk about being ecumenical. Actually, we can talk about that now. Let, let's talk about that. So ecumenicalism is this idea that we ought to, as Christians, work together with other Christians, right? Uh, sometimes even at the expense of doctrine, right? So we ought to bring down our doctrinal standards because we need to ally with other Christians, whether they believe the same thing we do on a lot of different doctrines, you know, we can maybe just reduce it down to a couple or some early church, you know, confessions or creeds that are very broad. Um, Hey, we believe in Christ, you know, we believe in the Trinity, uh, so we can work together for the gospel type of thing. So that's kind of, but I think the ultimate discussion on ecumenicalism and why I think that ties into relevancy is because the main point or the main goal of the church that is seeking seeking relevancy is 
this idea that we just need to win as many souls as possible. And so the same kind of idea lays behind the ecumenical mindset is, hey, if we need to win as many souls as possible, then we need to cast as wide a net as possible. Right. So doctrine takes a back seat. Truth takes a back seat. Obedience takes a back seat to this idea that, hey, we just need to save people. And, you know, if all we need to get them to do is make a decision for Christ, okay, so again, this ties in with revivalism as well. If we just need to get people to make a decision for Christ, have an experience, you know, make a choice, then we can tolerate some difference in belief. You know, we can swallow some difference in belief. We can be, because we're seeking this relevance to try to reach people, we can be disobedient, but the ends justify the means kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, this was originally one of my questions, and um, I think Hart raised good questions in the book. One of the ones I came from it was based on the history he was presenting, the way it sounded like was some groups that were Presbyterian or Lutheran got into situations where they didn't want to, and they realized that after the fact, maybe it took five years or longer, but the point was that they saw that truth was being compromised, and they got out of those situations. But he also raises the point that to the extent you stay in those situations, you have to start minimalizing what truth you do agree on, right? So maybe, oh, so the the people that you're ecumenically uniting with, well, they don't agree with you creedally. So you accept some minimalistic definitions of, well, virginity of Christ and atonement and this and that. At what point does that become just empty words or not even a uh, true union among Christians? And how is that helpful? Or, or So I guess my question would be, what type of ecumenical unity can you have with other people that doesn't compromise on truth but still establishes some sort of bond in social forms, or is that even possible? I think you've really got to have it focused on what the objective is, you know? If, if like to your point about the abortion clinic, it's perfectly reasonable for Catholics and Protestants to be shoulder to shoulder speaking about out against the evils of abortion, because that is the objective to, to, to end that, to oppose that. But that doesn't change the fact, like you said, that there is a real relevance to the distinctions between Catholics and Protestants on that note, and that's brought out. So you, you can focus on what the objective is, and you can come together for that objective while still maintaining those distinctions. I don't think it has to be an either-or. So so we, we might uh, protest at the abortion clinic with the Catholics, but we wouldn't hold a joint worship service with them. Absolutely, right. Well, yeah, that's what that, I was trying that to say. goes back to the whole interfaith thing, right? So we, we say that, yeah, I like the way you said that, Bo. I mean, we basically, Thank what you. is the objective of what we're, what we're trying to get to? Um, and, and I think some of Hart's critique is, is valid in the sense that, you know, are we really reducing the faith to these five things when we have this large confession, right? If you're a Presbyterian, the faith is expressed in these longer articles. It's like, well, I don't really go for all that. But that's what, that's how as Presbyterians we're expressing ourselves. This is part of our confession. And so it's important. We don't want to diminish that. But at the same time, we're willing to work with other groups depending on what that that task, whatever that thing is that we're doing, and we're saying, yeah, we can we can work together on this or that or whatever it is. Right. So so Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists will come shoulder to shoulder to fight 
SJWs and you know critical race theory and all those things, sure. but bring up the baptism men men, debate. Women then, are women, right? Bring up the baptism debate, and they'll start cutting throats. Well, it's, it's more than that. So hopefully, I, we're having those after that. We, right? we get the yeah. other stuff that comes out. later. That's that comes right. later. So to answer your question, Ryan, um, I think that to have a close communion with another group of people, uh, another body of believers, right? We would have to. Because so we're we're Presbyterian, right? We we're in the OPC. We hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If that's the case, that is we're, we're saying we believe this about the Bible. And so for us to have close ecumenical ties and worship with another body of believers, they would have to also hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, or else we are necessarily saying that some of what we believe about the Bible is not important or is not uh, is not the first things, which I think is. The National Association of Reformed Churches. Well, I it think is based on the Westminster Confession of it Faith, is, right? But Loosely, there's also maybe. overlap with the Reformed Churches, where you have the the three forms of unity and right. And so okay, overlap, yes. right? There's ecumenical overlap in there. Right. We say, hey, generally right. speaking, we so agree. I would include those in, yes. in what I'm saying that they're all basically teaching the same thing. We, you, I don't think you can faithfully have uh, close ties, ecumenical connections with a group that does not believe the same thing about the Bible that you do, because sure. that's the importance of confessions, right? Because every church can say we believe the Bible. Sure. Well, that doesn't matter what you the, what the you Mormons believe say. The Bible they we believe the Bible. It's what do you believe the Bible teaches, right? right. And that's so, actually a great point that Hart brought up. Yeah. Right. The idea that everyone can, you know, you know, and I think he was talking about the, the context of major if I'm not mistaken, where he was saying that anybody can say they believe the Bible. The confessions actually define what you believe about right. the Bible. Well, Ryan, you were stroking your beard over there for a hot minute. So what, yeah. what's your thoughts? <laughs> when you started talking about Reformed churches and Catholics coming together in some sort of ecumenical movement, I was definitely stroking my beard to wonder, yeah, I mean, we're both there, but is that a joint sort of uh, opposition against abortion, or is it more so that it's incidental and that, yep, that, right. that's a good point. That's a good point. I didn't mean to imply that you guys are like getting together with Catholics and scheduling, you know, the same. No, you just happen to be occupying the same space of land. Like if, you know, if the barbarian hordes were coming, you might occupy the same space of land in shooting them to get them to go away. Because you would, you would, you would know this, but you know, the Catholics will always bring their Mary statue and have things put in and it. you could bash and that you could bash it into little pieces you could pull a, a cromwell and as you get this uh, uh. if you guys haven't seen that movie you've really got to see it i need it's to see it awesome I guess so. you could do that do so, that next so time. do you think ryan that um if the stated goal was to go against abortion you could alley up with ally up with catholic uh, no <laughs> there has to be um and this is where uh, again heart asks good questions so what is the line right can i get behind a reformed baptist who holds to the london baptist confession can i get to a lutheran who holds to a different confession than the what do lutherans Westminster? what is their confession i was augsburg or something Augsburg. Oh. Oh. Augsburg. yeah augsburg yeah. so augsburg. i would have to study that more to be honest i don't well, know so i would say that at, i would say i agree with you as a church body the church if the church is going to do any kind of ecumenical thing it has to be someone with uh, the same beliefs about the Bible. But uh, if I'm going to organize an anti-abortion thing because, you know, uh, it it has an impact on my town, right? They're trying to put in a, a Planned Parenthood in my town. Then I, me as a person, you know, I would feel fine, organ, you know, bringing in yeah. non-believers or Catholics. Well, anyone um, who, who objected to that. Who would oppose that, you, you, right? Backup is backup at that point. Well, I think there's a big difference between the church and its... its uh, 
you know, the church as a body, as a corporate body and an individual's acting, um, which at that point, I'm not, I don't have any kind of ecclesiastical authority. You're not so, representing your church. Right. Well, I was going to say as a Christian, okay. you're acting as okay. a Christian citizen, as opposed to the church making a de- right. In declarative statement about that right. particular thing. Right. So, I mean, that, that actually raises points there. I mean, we know of a lot of very popular churches that do a lot of abortion ministries as a church, you know, the, the church, it is the, I don't want to name the name, but you know, it's that church doing that abortion ministry. Maybe that is something to, to consider. Maybe it's better to do it as individuals as opposed to one particular church doing it. Now, granted, I guess if you're all doing it as a church and you're by yourselves, that's a different story. So this kind of gets off of where we were maybe planning to go with conversations, but uh, should that not maybe at some point, become a conversation with elders that you need to have. Let's say that you explode in popularity and you're starting to have a lot of influence over a lot of people, right? Non-believers even who oppose abortion too, or, you know, other people that you have said that you would um, collaborate with. Okay. Um, you're starting to have this Billy Sunday ish sort of impact in society. Do you at some point, I know that it's not Sunday, but do you not talk to your pastor about it? Do you not do you not look to see is this um, regulated or, or understood by you're, your authorities? You're, you're bringing up a very interesting question that I, I don't know that has a good answer. In I have a good answer because yeah. there's good questions in this. Well, book. but I, mean, I don't but, have all the answers but, either. But I mean, though, I mean, the, but American Christianity, and I think this is part of what Hart's addressing. Right? You've got this large amount of parachurch organizations that are basically operating under the guise of the church. And so you have to ask, well, what is the church doing? What is the church supposed to be doing? And, uh, you know, you've got to separate that out. I mean, that's that's the difficult historical question. So hypothetically or theoretically, we might say, yeah, it's easy to separate that. But then when you start pulling out the actual history, it's like, man, you're talking about significant swaths of the church that we may have to pull out and say, this right. is not really the church. Can I make an analogy? <laughs> Just like a father has an authority over his son, Right. And the son wants to go make a lemonade stand. Right. And he wants to do it with some friends. And the father needs to think about, well, who are these friends and what are they there for? And are they going to represent the the sort of, quote unquote, company that you're putting forward to the cul-de-sac or whoever? Right. You should probably as a son, before you say, hey, yeah, you're going to be a partner, a partner in my lemonade stand. You probably need to talk to your father about that first. No. So this is that's a perfect uh, example because this is exactly where Hart would say, okay, now the church, which the the Reformed Confessions would say is focused on word and sacrament. If that's the case, that if I want to go do some kind of action in society to uh, try to eliminate abortion, that I need to get some kind of church approval or church the church needs to come in. Now the church is becoming activist. You know, now the church is forsaking her primary goals and focus to enter the realm of the civil to become activist, right? And so that's where I would agree with Hart. It says the church is focused on the word and sacrament. Now, not that the church, now that I can't ask my pastor for advice on this. Which we did before uh, we started this podcast. We but, all... But the, if I'm seeking... Now, again, if, if I'm doing something that is infringing on word and sacrament, I think that's different, right? But I, th- I don't think like someone trying to get bills passed outlaw abortion is infringing on the church's uh, 
mission of word and sacrament at all. And so, but, but if I'm having sermons and rallies and baptizing people and doing all the functions of the church, that's where I think you have an issue. And that's where the critique is of revivalism, because again, they're doing the word and sacrament just outside the bounds of the church. That's a problem. But seeking to advance the crown rights of Christ into society, into my sphere, uh, in my workplace, in my job, in my town, is not something that the church, as as a the church proper, should be involved in. So the question is not about seeking, right? Everybody can have good intentions. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So that's not the issue. Um, like, well, if I'm doing it. I mean, if I'm sure. doing it, uh, we, we would still say beyond Sunday that pastoral visits should be legitimate and that they should come and visit and sure. talk to you about how your family life is doing and things like that. Right. Sure. Okay. So that's an element of discipline. It right. extends to beyond Sunday service. Um, so if, Hey, uh, I'm, it's beyond I'm, Sunday, but we're not just talking about Sunday morning though. We're exactly. talking about the ministry of the church right. and the through the elders, which includes the pastors, the ruling elders. So I mean, visitation would be included in that. I, I wouldn't just limit it to the you know the two hours on Sunday morning or hour on the Sunday evening. I would say the extension of the church is the the elders, which includes the pastor, basically doing oversight, preaching sacraments is certainly primary in that sense because it becomes visible in public, but then you also have the, the work of the officers as it extends out to the congregation. So that's not illegitimate. That so can I so can I make something clear yeah. as a question? Would you, if your son wanted to make a lemonade stand, be okay with your son going and soliciting a neighbor as a partner without your approval? And it doesn't matter if he's an, let's say he's an unbeliever. So the analogy fails. Though. Yeah, the analogy How? falls apart because uh, I am to my son more than what an elder is to me. <laughs> okay. okay, I have more authority over my son than an elder has over me because I have authority over all aspects of my son's life. Your son can't leave your household. I don't ask my elder nine. if I want to do a business venture. I don't think. If I want to go and, and do sure. a business venture with someone, I don't need to go seek approval from my elders. Sure. Now, my elder might speak into my life and be like, hey, this guy is bad news that you're doing business with type of thing. But I don't, my son needs to seek my approval to do that because he's <laughs> under my authority in all so areas. So this is, where this, is where this book brought up good questions to me because the, the things you're saying right now, I'm starting to think. I'm starting to think. And I'm not thinking about R2K or whatever. I'm thinking about at what point do elders have influence over our lives? I'm it's not influence, are, are, are but authority. Are you changing your, your recommendation? Yeah, right. You're, no, I'm, I'm definitely you're not. You're the guy that said it wasn't <laughs> a good thing. Like, it's oh, not man. about influence. You're, you're, not. Asking, asking you're asking a, a question friend. on authority, not influence. Yeah. Influence is very different than authority. Well, yes. I'm, yeah. I'm saying that well, sure. if, you wanted well, to, if you wanted to partner up with a cocaine dealer to, uh, uh, to protest abortion, that'd be your right to do that. No, but you, you, I think what you're getting at, though, Daniel, you're right. is basically your, your pious advice versus the authority of the church. Right. Right. So elders can give pious advice, but that's not the same thing as a authoritative statement from the session to say you cannot do that. Right. You are in sin. And, that, and, that's and, it, and you'd be wise to listen to that yeah, advice. You'd be wise to listen to the advice, but then sure. then we're not necessarily bring that's not necessarily a disciplinable or actual right. item for the session to say we, we're going to say, I'm going to say something against you. It's like, hey, now this has now become a problem. Because Whereas my son must obey me. Sure. I'm just thinking of testimony <laughs> and things of that nature. In a practical like, sense, your son can't afford to make a lemonade stand unless you finance it for him. <laughs> I'm the, all, all this is true. So there's, who's there's, buying the lemons? Yeah. So yeah, you the are the Federal Reserve. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the the analogy breaks down at some point, but the point is that 
Um, you know, just like we would look upon politicians with suspicion when they collaborate with people whose testimonies are not great. Oh, but it's for good purposes. Yeah, okay. But you're going to be looked at a certain way, and it might be to your benefit to think that through and um, talk to somebody who might have a bit of wisdom on the subject. But having said all that, you still go to abortion clinics alongside Catholics occupying the same geography. I mean, they're there not because we invited them, because they're there. But you know they're there. Right. You know they're going to be there. Sure, so we should... So any anywhere that there's a secularist around, we should abscond. Well, that's your position. I mean, that's not. Yeah, that's not that's definitely not. That's R two K right there. That's okay, not my well, position. You're the one advocating it. His I'm point is, if so, his point is, if I'm going against abortion and someone else is against abortion, then why shouldn't I? I mean, you're doing the same thing. I'm, I'm saying that thing. just as we are there to oppose abortion, we're also there to preach the gospel to those people who need right. to be converted. Well, I was going to say on the issue of abortion. Like I said, to use Schaefer's language, right? You you have co-belligerents that are acting with you right. against that particular issue, but that doesn't mean that you don't want to bring the gospel to sure, bear. Absolutely, with sure. those co-belligerents that yeah, may, we don't agree with you that. know, the Mormons right. may show up, and so we say we can't go with them. Yeah, but we want to bring the gospel to them. But we but I don't stop showing as, up to an abortion clinic just well, because just they're because there. They show up. That's right. That's right. Well, it's the same thing with me. If I was trying to go myself and try to get abortion outlawed in my town, I might partner up with the you know, the cocaine dealer to get abortion outlawed. Well, that's I, more voluntary rather than incidental. But I would also be calling him to repentance as well. Okay. I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'd invite him to, I would invite him to my church. You I'll, know? I'll leave the question there. Cocaine <laughs> <dealers> <laughs> <are showing up? laughs> I know, I I know a few. Bodo's a lot. Well, I mean, you may know a few, but I may just, <laughs> yeah, just ask I know him. a few, but... That yeah. just seems like a strange thing. Well, that was a long line of reasoning. I don't do much of anything with him, though. I don't just, you know... Good call. Um, let's go ahead. No, go ahead. ahead. It's your, it's your your monkey. It's your circus. All right. So let's talk about, uh, this idea of church versus individual. Ooh, that's good. Church versus private study. Sola scriptura versus solo Solo. scriptura. Scriptura. Yeah. There's a good book by Keith Matheson called Sola Scriptura. The uh, shape of Sola Scriptura. Where he, you know, this idea that uh, he kind of puts forward in the book, he talks about it, that, Christianity in America has become very individualistic. Right. And when that happens, and you know, because of the revivals and the piety and the you know, a lot of factors, the pro- proliferation of the Bible and widespread literacy, right? There's this idea in America that you just need your Bible, right? And you can read your Bible, you can have your Bible on an island, interpret it yourself, come up with what it teaches, and then you're good, right? And I think I think that really drives a lot of the low church view. And he even said it like people had the Bible and so they no longer needed the clergy to tell them what the Bible meant. Right. And what the Bible thought. And that's, I really appreciate the confession when it says the Bible was delivered to the saints, but through the church. Right. Right. And so we're not getting rid of the church. The church is necessary here. Uh, But yeah, what do y'all think about that? I have a lot to say about it, but go ahead. Can I, can I start this to ask Jeff something? Go for it. So we talked a little bit before our discussion about um, the dialogue that happens between God and man in worship. Yes. And when you're talking about the individualistic, so low scriptura standpoint of, I have my Bible, why do I need you? There really is no dialogue happening there. It's, I'm interpreting the Bible, and this is what God's saying, and I don't have to hear you, I don't have to sit down and listen to what you're saying to me. I know just as much as you, and maybe even more, and this is a problem in American Protestantism, and I speak to that, and I've said this before, as somebody who at some point didn't realize that he needed to go to church because I thought I knew more than what the pastor did. 
I needed to realize at some point that God is speaking to me through the church and my role is not to uh, interpret God for myself and just leave it at that. I need to speak back to God through the church. So that dialogue that um, I think you mentioned and maybe you can help. Is there a to, question in here somewhere? No, <laughs> just forget it. Ryan, like, Ryan likes so telling can you, can story. You speak, can, you, can you speak to that a little bit more? The idea of dialoguing well, in worship. I, mean, I, I think that the, the public worship in particular should be a holy dialogue where God speaks to the people through the minister, through the elders in, when they pray or, or, you know, depending on what particular circumstances there. But anyway, the church through, it, it's a ministerial function, right? It's not a mediatorial. That's the, the, the big thing we need to make sure is that it's, the, the church is not necessary in the absolute sense, but it's one of those means that God has placed uh, and called us to, to, to submit to our elders, to come to public worship. And so, yeah, we receive grace through that. And by faith, we receive that. It's right. not necessarily that we're just coming to say, I've got an automatic blessing. Here's, no, the, here's I, the magic powder. That's here's, right. I'm receiving this by you. faith. I'm yeah. coming. I realize these are fallible men. I realize these are men. I, I know what they're like in daily life. But you know what? God has called them to this office. I voted for them or I've submitted to them in some respect. I don't know how this works, but God is going to bless me through that. And so, yeah, I need to come to that and say, I'm going to submit myself under that and be blessed by that. And then by faith, I'm going to receive grace through that. You know, Bob Inc. has a great way of saying that and said, you know, that, you know, that, that, that nature is, grace redeems nature. So we don't fundamentally change what we are, but that, that grace basically extends and accentuates as it were as, you know, in me and my place, I'm coming to a guy. I'm coming to a man who's going to preach the gospel. Is he anything? No. That man is going to acknowledge that he's not anything. But he does acknowledge that, that God's ministry is coming through this man and somehow that, you know, it, it works out through faith. And I'm not the, saying that in a mystery sense. It's not like, oh, we just figured it out. Right. I'm not saying that. Well, for instance, like the sacraments, right? Yes. We don't just take the sacraments and like, okay, I just, I eat the bread and I drink the wine and I get the blessing. It's not, it's not ipso de facto bestowed upon you because you go through the forms and, and the, uh, you have to receive these things by faith, right? You're active in this. And so there is this, the, the elders are administering this to you through the Spirit. You're receiving this through faith through the Spirit as well. Because, so these things are effectual to you well, because of that. Well, interesting, even that, the, the, you know, the book talks about that the, the merit of the, sacrifice, or the, uh, of, the, uh, of the sacrament is not based on the man, right? It's not based on that man giving you that. What is the merit of the man? Well, it's nothing. Right. It's the fact that he stands in an office. Right. It's a ministerial office, so it's basically coming through that man. And, and those sacraments cannot only be a means to grace, but... Nobody else is going to follow that up. Oh, go ahead. What, what heresy are you about a, to spout? A out? means to judgment. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, follow, I definitely agree with that. Now. Following scripture, right? Not taking, not partaking, not discerning the Lord's body is a serious thing. Right. You know, some of you have fallen asleep. Some of you have right. died because of that. And yeah. the same thing with with baptism. I mean, the the circumcision baptism we see in in the Old Testament and the New is that it's always a, either covenant blessing or covenant judgment based upon the faith of the one receiving it. That's the interesting thing about baptism and or circumcision, right? Old Testament circumcision, New Testament baptism. You can baptize a child; doesn't automatically mean that blessing is going to be there, but there is a mark on them, and so they now become liable. They have to embrace Christ. Right. They need to pursue Christ, and if they don't pursue Christ, you see the there's judgment. real danger there. And so yeah. when a pastor says, 
hey, make sure, make sure you're, you know, sure, make sure your baptism. That's a serious thing. And right. we need to do the same thing as, as adults. Yeah. And so the, the main thing, you know, with just church versus private study is that the, I think one of the things I've always thought is that if you have this idea that you have the Bible and, you know, we just, the Bible is the word of God and we just need the Bible type of thing. It's like, okay, did you just get the Bible? You know, are you the first yeah. person to get I, the Bible and you're just going to come up with what you think? Like, ha, you know, if we believe that we understand the Bible through the spirit, then we would also have to say that the spirit has been working in thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of believers throughout history to understand the spirit. And so don't look down on the church. Don't look down on the spirit working in men past in the church, right? You know, the church has been kept in darkness for thousands of years and I have been enlightened. Or dare I say it, don't look down upon men present like pastors. It's true. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, but, and, and that, that's, I think the, probably the key thing is that coming to scripture and assuming that, you know, I'm the first one to read this. I'm the first one to see this. Right. I'm the first, no, you know, go read a few commentaries. Yes. They're not inspired, but at least pretend like there's some guardrails and you're not the first guy to read scripture. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's humility. That's where that saying, individualism. I'm approaching scripture and I'm saying, okay, I don't really know it all. Yeah. I think I have this interpretation. I've done that before. In the, I mean, I've personally done that before in the past. I've read this. And then this realization that, wait, I'm not the first guy to read this. Yeah. And so. Which is a blessing yes. from God. Well, we, it, well right. <laughs> that we and, have and, such a rich then, history. But even to Ryan's point, right, it's not even just the past commentators or the past writers of commentaries. It's. Hey, my pastor, my elders, there's right. other men that are in the congregation. You know, one of the things in presbytery meetings that's very, to me, very endearing is that a lot of the guys will address fathers and brothers, or uh, yeah, fathers and brothers, right? They're addressing men that they're equals, but at the same time, they're acknowledging that these guys have been in the faith longer than I have. So maybe I don't have wisdom. I'm going to make a speech, you know, correct me. I really uh, appreciated that the idea of confessionals and breaking up the subjectivity that you can see through personal Bible study, the the circles that I came up in, that was the biggest thing of, you know, you have your, every, everybody knows that you have your, uh, your small group, you know, and uh, everybody goes around reading a different text and well, what does it say to me? This means, and then to me, this means you got 19 different subjective, you know, interpretations. 20 people show up for a Bible study and you end up with 19 interpretations. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, to me, they, that was one of the, the beauties of confessionalism once I was exposed to it, was there's this somewhat, not infallible, like you said, but there's this objective notion of, this is actually what the historical church has said this means, and that should have some high relevance to you when you read it, and you think that it's talking about, you know, something totally off the wall unrelated. The other thing I would though say though about confessionalism that we need to maybe not, I don't want to use the word be careful, but I do kind of want to be careful is that you have this, you know, how a body, so how the PCA interprets the confession, how the OPC interprets the confession, how the ARP interprets the confession. And so there are, there, there becomes this imposing, what is the body thinking about this? That's a good point. And so the PCA hasn't, so as a for instance, right, and I'm not trying to bash the PCA because there's a lot of good brothers in the PCA, but I mean the PCA has guys that are openly teaching evolution. You know, the OPC doesn't. They have, we have our own problems. I'm not saying that. But, I mean, how you interpret and impose those things becomes this like, well, you know, the, 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 the OPC is compromised on a variety of things, including creation, for example. Yeah. You raise a very good point about, you know, ha- having grace with that. We're going to be covering a book later in this year that's all about 
what the confession, the you know, the Westminster Confession says about one specific point and the different views in terms of, you know, the textual issue, um, how that's interpreted through the confession. That's a very good point. You've got to be gracious about that. Well, what? I just, thought, just like it's not enough to say, I believe the Bible. It's, again, not enough to say, I believe in the Westminster Confession, as we see, because, like you said, there's different denominations that say, oh, yeah, I mean, the PCUSA holds to the Westminster Confession Absensibly. of Faith. You know, do they, they? Do they, though? They do. They hold to a watered-down version of it. Uh, they do hold. They do say they, they hold they, to they it, They would at least. claim they put their own gloss on it. Define and, you know, hold. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But but that's that's the point. But, you know, the, the Mormons hold to the Bible, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses would say they hold to the Bible. Right. You know, so, again— this idea of just being an individual and say, I just hold to the Bible. I just believe what the Bible says. Well, you're not really saying anything, right? That's the beauty of confessions, I think. And the, uh, just the, I'm so thankful for confessions is that it tells you, Hey, this is what the church believes. You know, this is, these are the guardrails in which the conversation exists within, but also, yes, we have to understand that. Yeah. It, it matters what that means when you say, I believe the confession, because just like anything, you can say you believe it and then allow, you know, outside interpretations, etc. Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, yes, there's a couple things I wanted to say to that point. Uh, number one, do you think the founders or the, the divines who made the confession had a um, ultra rigid stance? Why are you looking at me like that? Where, where, yes, uh, because there was only maybe. one possible. Okay, so the, did the divines agree on everything? No. Like, or was there yeah. so thank you no. for <laughs> anticipating so, so, Daniel. So two years but that's ago, okay, right? So two years ago, uh another elder and I went to um uh and I'm not saying he's you know the authority authority, but we went to Chad Van Dixhorn's class on what you know, he's the foremost authority on the original He transcribed theory. the minutes. He did. He transcribed the minutes and there's a lot of good stuff and he wrote his commentary, which is a very easy to read, almost devotional. Um but and I actually talked with other men who I will not name here, um, but they basically kind of disagreed with him on some points in terms of, well, maybe it is a consensus document, but not maybe in the way that that he took it. So, I mean, it depends on the topic, right? It depends on what area they're talking about. But to your to ask, to, to directly address your question, yes, there were some things that were, so like on atonement, there were things like the active or passive obedience of Christ. Those are not, that language is not there. The Savoy Declaration later makes that more clear. But the Westminster, I mean, that was one of the questions that we had as a kind of a homework project. Hey, take up this idea of universalism. You know, hypothetical, Mm. is that possible? Mm -hmm. Does a confession allow for that? And I was on the side that had to take the opposing side. And it was very difficult not being in that position. It's like it's uh, like the book we reviewed. Yep. Yeah. Where were you like year. three books ago? Deviant Calvinism. That, was, he yeah. that was ten books ago. Yeah. yeah but right. yes. we read a book where he argues for an even broader confession than saying the confession would accept all these other like hypothetical universalism, yeah. all these no, things. No, we we no. we disagreed with him as well. So but. yes. Uh, the second question I had, based on what we've talked about, is I don't know. How I answered the first one, but well, you, you you did a <laughs> admirable job. Um, the second question I had was, uh, do you think that there's a sort of checks and balances in that? Yes, we are confessionalist, but at the same time, because we are meant to search the scriptures, if the pastor speaks something from the pulpit that is not. Uh, by good necessary consequence, deducible from scripture, 
that we are uh, free to bring that up or disagree with them. Well, I think even you, when we were talking about this before, you said, well, how do you decide to go to a confessional church? Exactly. Which is a good question. Like, I, I decided to go to a confessional church based on my convictions about Scripture, right? And so there, there obviously is a personal, hey, you know, because our faith is personal, right? Our faith is corporate. There's Trinity, right, in the Godhead. Um, but our faith is also personal. Our faith is corporate. Our faith is personal uh, where we accept Christ ourselves. We have to believe ourselves. You know, our parents can't believe for us. Our pastor can't believe for us. Um, our religion has to be our own. And so we do have to believe things about the Bible and Christianity. But then also it's this idea where we are not. So there is that tension there where we're not going alone. It's a tension, but it's not just a Protestant tension. Like, oh, Roman Catholics will say, yeah, see, this is how blueprint for anarchy. Well, guess what, guys? You guys also accepted an authority based on your convictions. And so it's too coquet. And, 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 and how's that working out for him so far with this uh, current pope? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. That, that's an interesting question to ask a Catholic. Large, larger question. Yeah, yeah, that's a larger question. I'll come to your abortion thing so I can ask a Catholic that question. How about that? So, so like most things, this is not a either or, right? I mean, you can swing the pendulum too far where, oh, the church is totally authoritative and I don't need to look at Scripture. I mean, that's the old Roman Catholic. That's what the Reformers you know, rebelled against that, oh, yeah, you just listen to what we tell you and, you know, you don't look at Scripture and uh, the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. The other side would be more what we swung to in America is like, hey, just take your Bible and decide what you think Christianity means to you. Um, you know, like most things, there's a, a a place in the middle that where the truth resides. Well, I, I think confessional Christianity, though, so if we want to put ourselves back in the narrow camp, right, when we're sitting in the confessional Christianity camp, we're still talking about churches that are implementing and we'll say putting the guardrails on what that confession means because I mean, our own church came out of a much more narrow interpretation. And so it was, it ended up, to me, it became a confession within a confession, right? All of these issues become, here's what the confession really means. Well, really, you're only talking about a handful of things. One of the things I've appreciated personally, and, and despite all of its other issues with the OPC, is the fact that, hey, this is what the confession teaches. There's only a handful of issues or a handful of ideas that we might say, uh, these are controversial issues that we got to kind of figure out what that means. And truthfully, even on those, like on the creation issue, I mean, that ends up becoming kind of a mixed bag because I'm not aware of any person or any man that actually teaches or advocates a revolution. That's not the case in the PCA, which ostensibly has a higher standard, but that's clearly not been the case. And yeah, and I'm not trying to bash the PCA when I say that, because there's, like I said, but I mean, that's just what, when you look at the practical results of that, Okay, what is that? How does that manifest itself? Well, yeah, to your point of um, the confessions, they may delimit the uh, interpretations you can have. And that's very important because, you know, more, uh, Mormons can't say, well, as God once was, man now is, and as man now is, God he may be. Yes. You know, no, that's not in the bounds of the confessions. So that's not a possible interpretation given what those um, creed, you know, the creed says. Uh, but there is maybe room to have some discussion about certain things, right? Well, right, even, because the confession even, is meant to be in a, a broad document. It's, I mean, it's narrow it's a, it's in the context summary. of our American yes. Christianity, but at the time it was meant to be— Well, it was uh, meant to draw know. all these various parties within the English church that right. were you know, kind of warring and fighting. That's why you don't see a lot of stuff about government in there. That's basically relegated to, to, you know, to book of 
you know, the book of church orders, right? You see all this stuff labeled out. I mean, if you look at the chapter on the, on the church, for example, in chapter 25, it doesn't specify how elders work, how, how the structure of the church works. That actually gets manifested in a tertiary standard, not in the primary standard. It just says, here's what the church is, here's what the church does, and, you know, this is what the church doesn't do. Right? It's not the same as the civil magistrate. They don't have civil authority. They don't execute people. They preach the gospel. They administer sacraments. They exercise discipline. They have their own government, which is really what that idea, by the way, discipline looks like. Discipline is not just we're excommunicating people. Discipline is about structure and government in the church. With the intent to restore them. Well, right, but I'm saying, but in that sense, but I'm, I'm saying that, that this actually leads into an interesting question that's probably not relevant, or at least... It's okay. We talk about irrelevant stuff all the time. But, but I mean, it gets into... On the podcast. If, if, on the podcast. You, if you have a church that doesn't have formal church membership, what does that mean for the church? Hmm. Are, are you really a church? I mean, that, that, that brings up some very serious questions. Sure. About, well, from a confessional standpoint, can we really say that places that don't advocate or care about church membership, quote-unquote... Is that actually a church? Oddly enough, see, even in my like Southern Baptist raising, I've never heard of that. That's a thing. Like no formal church membership. Just I mean, there's certain places where you kind of come in and wander in, and well, I mean, that wow. would include church discipline, non-denominational pretty... mega churches. Well, oh, I mean, even yeah. like church discipline would be included in church membership. That's pretty non-existent in like Southern sure, Baptist yeah, churches. In the so churches I grew up. Or I, I guess my point was though is the discipline is not necessarily saying that you know people think about church discipline. You're bringing the hammer down on because you were doing this and right. such. And most people would understand that even though they's like, well, don't you have grace or love? But I think what that's referring to though is not just the the act of discipline, uh, but the structure. Right. Sure. So the, you that are in, in or place. you are out. Yeah. And you are a visitor. This is not the same thing as a member of the church. You have duties, responsibilities, and privileges. So sure. we shouldn't just think of it as being a negative. It's a positive. I have privileges that other people don't have. I can That's say, coming to the table. I can say in the instances of church discipline that I've seen at my church, my current church, all of them have ended up in like this gracious, beautiful thing where everybody walks away from it with a better picture of things than you know before it all began. Um, yeah. So anyway, well, I think the, the question, right. Church versus private study, uh, it's both right. I mean, you have to be added to the church, right. If you're saved, you're added to the church. Uh, but also, you know, test yourself according to scripture to see if you're in the faith. And so there is a, this, this part, you know, again, like most things it's balanced. Um, we have to do both of these things. So go to church and read your Bible. Or go to church, yeah, and, and listen to the minister of the word who's well, going to preach the word to you, you know, and, we, and read your Bible. Well, I was going to say, we don't <laughs> stop reading our Bibles, but we don't encourage people to say that reading your Bibles is a substitute for the ministry of the church. Right. Uh, which really speaks to baptism, the sacraments. I mean, it's like you can benefit from listening to preaching. You can benefit from reading your Bible. You do. But those are not replacements for the ministry of the church, which is different. Kind of like Zoom church. Yeah, oh because boy. God God comes and visits his people and bestows grace on them and uh there is uh there is very real benefits of the visible church and the visible public worship of the church. There was a brother in uh in our local church that uh is now gone. Uh he's in a much better place now. But he used to say that uh you know he, he said, he said, it's almost borderline. I don't want to be heretical. He said, but coming men and women and people who come to the evening service, because it's so much of an arduous tax, uh, task in our day and age, 
God is really blessing them, right? When right. they're willing to come out and really make a sacrifice, not Sunday morning, which at one level, you know, everybody, everybody does, does that. Right. Yeah. And, and I realized, you know, he was not trying to put that above, but I mean, I think sure. the intent was saying that, you know, when, when you do that, when we're committing to that, we're committed to the ministry of the church, there's something there. Yeah. I agree. And that resonated with me. Amen. Yeah. God will, God will bless us. So I think that about wraps it up. Anyone have any last uh, final thoughts about any of the, the topics around relevancy or private study or ecumenicalism? I mean, there's plenty more that we could have talked about. It's true. We didn't even get to all the topics did, on our did list. Did we exhaust it? No. Go to church the idea of middle and ground. read your Bible. We've, ex- <laughs> yeah, we've exhausted the time. We haven't exhausted we have the topics, exhausted the not time. surprisingly. Yes. So, uh, But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the discussion. I think that, uh, you know, having the church, as long as the church is centered on its mission of word and sacrament and believers uh, are embracing that and pursuing that, you know, God's going to transform us. If we, if we are pursuing the ministry of the church, if we are pursuing Christ in the church, then he's going to change us, which is going to change us in our lives, in our families, in our jobs, in our civil spheres. And so Christianity is going to be relevancy. But again, we have to be pursuing Uh, The church has to be pursuing its calling, word and sacrament. You know, Christ is our head. He is our husband. And as the bride, we need to be pursuing him and everything else takes care of itself. That's primary. And God answers prayers. So when we pray for kings, when we pray for presidents, when we pray for the people in our lives, God answers those prayers too. And that is something that takes effect in the public sphere. Yeah. To, to everybody who's made it this far through this, um, if you're an American and you're a Christian, your view of the church, not through any fault of your own necessarily, but for what you've inherited is probably too low. And you could stand to have a higher view of the primacy of the ordinary means of grace. Um, don't go too far into that. You know, don't, don't end up over in Eastern Orthodoxy or anything like that with it. But we have a relatively low view of the church and what it is actually doing in this country. And that's just something we've inherited. And as, especially as reform people, we ought to change that. Um, and that, that, that starts with just having an own, your own individual high view of the Lord's day of worship of, you know, the, the functions of your pastors and your elders and things like that. Sacraments. Exactly. Jeff, any final thoughts? No, you guys summarized it up. Well, that's, I mean, it's just the means of grace, right? That's what right. We're, we're, we're pursuing after and we're pursuing it not as unto men, but by faith, we're pursuing that and saying, this is God's ministry to us, and we can benefit and grow from that. Yep. Amen. All right, guys. Well, I really enjoyed it. What are we doing next month? Machen, who has talked in this book and we didn't have time to talk about in this podcast. Yes. So we're doing Machen, Christianity, and Liberalism. That's you next month. sure? That's next month. Yep. Okay. Yes. So, oh, that's my book. That is your book. Oh, I yeah. finally get one this year. <laughs> wow. We're looking forward to it. I thought I was a guest on this podcast All right. for a minute. Thanks for tuning in. No, I got a lot more to say. No. <laughs>